The sin of fear. Many people live under fear. It is our responsibility as Christians to help people rid themselves of this fear. The second sin in this group of four. Once I had tuberculosis. I had tuberculosis because I was constantly living under the fear of tuberculosis. When I was suddenly in junior high school, one of the classes I went to had bottles of alcohol filled with bones and intestines. The sight of these bottles filled with bones and intestines frightened me. One morning, the biology teacher was teaching on the subject of tuberculosis. In those days, there were no miracle drugs. And the teacher said, if you ever had tuberculosis, you would be dissipated. Your insides looking like these bottles the rest of your life. He told her the dangers of tuberculosis and at the close said, there are people who are born with a tendency to have it. Men with narrow shoulders and long necks seem to have more to catch it. All the students began to stretch their necks out like cranes. And in looking around, I saw that I had the longest neck in the classroom. Right away, I knew that I would get it. Fear struck me. When I got back to my room, I stood before the mirror looking at my neck all afternoon. Fear came into my heart, and every moment I lived under the grinding of fear. When I turned 18 old, I did have it. Like attracts like, and like produces like. If you have fear, the devil has an open channel through which to come and strike you. Fear is negative faith. So as I feared the disease, I contracted it. And as I vomited blood, I said to myself, yes, this is exactly what I expected. I read in Korean medical journals that some doctors claim that many Korean people die habitually. I thought to myself, how can people die from habit? Then I read the article. These non-Christian doctors wrote how strong a role fear plays in our lives. For example, a man's grandfather died from high blood pressure in the 50s. His son, when in his 50s, also died of a stroke. Now the grandson lives a fear of dying of a stroke. When he reaches his 50s, the moment he feels a dizziness in his head, he thinks, Oh, a stroke is coming. I am ready. If he feels something in his chest, he waits momentarily for a stroke. Each day, living with his fear and expectancy, the fear creates a situation in his body, and soon he does die of a stroke. Many women die because of the fear of cancer. One woman might say, well, my aunt died of cancer, and my mother died of cancer, so I'll probably die of cancer too. When she reaches an age similar to that of her aunt and mother of her death, she will feel any type of pain and say, oh, this is it. It certainly is coming now. Everybody, she will wait saying to herself that she's going to have it. Repeating this thought over and over, it is in the way the doctor said people were dying from habit. If a person has a specific fear, then the power of destruction begins to follow. In 1969, when God asked me to move from my second church, I had 10,000 members with 12,000 regularly attending. I was happy, feeling good and satisfied. I had a home, a wonderful wife, children, a beautiful car, even a chauffeur. I responded, God, I am going to stay at this church until my black hair turns white. But one day while I was praying in my office, the Holy Spirit came, Cho, your time is up here. You must be ready to move. Oh, Lord, I said, 
moved? I already pioneered one church, and this is my second pioneer work. Do you want me to pioneer again? Why should I pioneer constantly? You are choosing the wrong person. Go to someone else. And I started arguing with God. No one, however, should argue with God, for he is always right. Eventually, God persuaded me, saying, You go out and build a church which will seat 10,000, a church that will send out at least 500 missionaries. Father, I replied, I can't do that. I'm scared to death of building a church like that. But God said, No, I told you to go. Now go. I calculated roughly with a contractor about the cost. He told me that we need two and a half million dollars to build the size of a church, another half a million to purchase the land, and an additional two and a, and one half million to build an agent apartment complex. So I would need five and one half million dollars. The contractor asked me how much money I had. I told him I had twenty five hundred. He looked blankly at me, shook his head and did not even comment. Then I went to a meeting of of our church elders and told them the plan. One elder said, Pastor, how much money are you going to raise in America? Not a penny, I answered. Another elder asked, how much money can you borrow from the American bank? Not one penny, I replied. They said, you are a good, genuine minister, but you're no businessman. You can't build a church and apartment house like that. Then I called the 600 deacons together, and I told them the plan, but they immediately began to act like scared rabbits, as if I were levying a high tax on their lives. (laughs) I became discouraged, full of fear. I came to the Lord. Lord, you heard every word the elders and deacons said. They were all in agreement. So you got to think this over again. Then the Spirit spoke strongly in my heart. Son, when did I ask you to go and talk with the elders and deacons? Am I not supposed to, I asked? The Spirit answered, I command you to to build a church, not to discuss it. That's my command. I lifted myself up and said, Yes, it is your command. Then I will do it. I went to City Hall on a credit bought for four acres of expensive land located near Congress Hall one of the choicest pieces of land in Korea. Then I went to the contractor and made a contract to build that church, an apartment house complex, also on credit. I thought to myself, they will build the church easily. I will trust God and see. After the groundbreaking service, I went out to look around. I thought they would just dig a few yards down and put up the building. But there they were digging as if they had to develop a lake with dozens of bulldozers digging the earth. I became crazy with fear. I asked, Father, do you see how they're digging? And I have to pay for all this? Oh, I can't. And I was frozen with fear. My knees trembled. And in my imagination, I saw myself carried away in a prison van. I knelt down and prayed, Oh God, what can I do? Where can I stand? Where are you? I know that you are the total resource, and I put my trust in you. When I prayed, I could envision God's working, and I no longer had any fear. When I prayed, I could envision God's workings, and I had no longer any fear. But when I opened my eyes and looked at the situation again, I became fearful. 
So for the duration of the construction, I live with my eyes closed more than I live with my eyes open. <laughs> the same principle holds true in many situations. If you look at your circumstance with your physical eyes and live by your senses, Satan will destroy you with fear. But if you close your eyes and look to God, then you can believe. There are two different kinds of knowledge, essential knowledge and revelation knowledge. We should live by the revelation knowledge found in Genesis to Revelation, not by our sensual knowledge. We should instruct people to give up their fear of the environment and of their circumstances. If they do not, they cannot develop their faith, nor can God flow through them. Ask them to surrender their fears to the Lord and teach them to put their faith only in the word of God. Again, let me read that again. This is important. We should instruct people to give up their fears of the environment and of their circumstances. If they do not, they cannot develop their faith, nor can God flow through them. Ask them to surrender their fears to the Lord and teach them to put their faith only in the word of God. Amen. Our next sin is the sin of inferiority. Many people live with inferiority complexes and are constantly frustrated. This feeling of inferiority is the third problem area I will discuss. If people feel that they are inferior because they live in a slum area, you cannot pull them out. Perhaps they fail in their business and have resigned themselves to being a failure. But so long as they have this attitude, you cannot help them. You must ask each to surrender his inferiority complex and let himself be reconstructed by the love of God. One day, an elder brother of elementary school age killed his younger brother with a knife. This became sensational news topic. It was found that the parents had loved the younger son very much, constantly praising him in the presence of his older brother. Eventually, the older brother began to feel inferior. One day, when his parents were out, his younger brother came back from school, and the elder brother killed him. An inferiority complex is very destructive. I once suffered with an inferiority complex after two years in my first pioneering work. My church was progressively growing, but it was a loud church, a true Pentecostal church. People were filled with the Holy Spirit, and many were healed. One day, the executive committee of my denomination called me. At that time, they stood somewhere between the expressive Pentecostal and the, the state Presbyterian. They questioned me, are you really praying for the sick and getting those people to shout and speak in other tongues in your services? Yes, I replied. You're a fanatic, they asserted. I am not a fanatic. I'm doing everything according to biblical teaching, I defended. After discussing this, they took my ministerial license and sent me out. I was chased out of my own denomination. Afterwards, missionary John Herson came and took me back. When I was cast out, I was struck with feelings of inferiority. That inferiority complex brought about a feeling of destruction in me, and I had a difficult time struggling out of that situation. At that time, the members of the executive committee put me out. However, they did not realize that I was one day to be general superintendent of that same denomination. 
That is a post I held until recently. When I first came to that responsibility, we had only 2,000 members. By applying the laws of faith and teaching them to the pastors, we experienced rapid growth. By the time I resigned from that position, our census revealed that the denomination had a total of 300 churches with more than 200,000 members. We must deal with those who feel that they are unable to conquer life. We must pull them out of their depression and pessimism, build them up in love of Jesus Christ, and impart faith to them, telling them that nothing is impossible to the person who believes. We must heal them and train them, and by and by they are going to pull out of their inferiority complex. One Sunday morning as I was preaching at the second worship service, I saw a man I knew was mentally sick, brought in with his hands and feet bound. That particular day, we were making pledges for the fifth stage of our building plans. Many people were filled with pledges cards. When a pledge card came to this man, he wrote in 100 with his bound hand, $100. His wife laughed when the deacon came to take the pledge card. Don't believe him, she said. He's crazy. But after the service, when I met him, he was completely healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, having returned again to his right mind. He had been deeply suffering from an inferiority complex. He explained, I had a fertilizer factory, and I fell and went heavily into debt. I worried so much, I lost my mind. Then they took me to an institution and gave me all kinds of electric shock treatments. But I couldn't be cured. But I was sitting there listening to your words. I suddenly came out of my state of sickness and recognized reality. I lost my friends, my prestige, and my credit. I have a mountain of death. I can do nothing. I am nothing. You are something, I told him. You are not inferior. You came to Jesus, and now all of the power of Christ and all of his resources dwell within you. You are going to be used by God. You are not inferior, but you are God's man. Stand victoriously. You have all the power and resources dwelling within you, just waiting to be tapped. What kind of job am I going to have? He questioned me. I don't know. I replied, but keep on reading the Bible and pray. One day he returned filled with excitement. Pasta. I read the verse of scripture that says we are the salt of the world. How about my going into the retail business of selling salt. If you believe in it, I said, go right ahead and do it. So he went out selling salt on a small scale. He paid tithes, paid his pledge, and all the time was rejoicing in the Lord. God began to bless him, and his salt business took off. It grew and grew. Eventually, he built a large storehouse right beside the river where he placed $50,000 worth of salt. But one summer night, it rained heavily, and in the morning, when I got up, all the area had completely flooded. His storehouse also was flooded, and I was struck with fear all over again. That afternoon, when the rain stopped, I rushed out to his store. Other articles and materials can still be found after a flood, but salt has a great friendship with water. When I entered the storehouse, there was no salt left. The man, now an elder in the church, was sitting in the middle of his warehouse, singing and praising God. I walked in, trying to discern whether or not he was in his right mind. 
I went up to him and asked him, Are you okay or are you crazy? Pastor, I'm the real me. He smiled. I'm not crazy. Don't worry. I lost everything. God took it away. But as you always told me, I have all the resources here. Water could take away my salt, but water can't take away the total resources of the presence of God dwelling within me. I can tap those resources again and again by prayer and faith. You wait. Give me time. I'll rebuild my business again. He was not suffering from an inferior complex then. He was full of confidence. Now he is a multimillionaire through his salt business. He also went into watch production and has his own company. He has accompanied me to Los Angeles, Vancouver, New York. He recently went to Europe. He is just one example of how we can help rid people of their feelings of inferiority by stressing that they have all God's resources at their disposal on tap. Amen. Now for the sin of guilt. Many people also suffer from feelings of guilt, the fourth problem that needs to be overcome before the Christian can work actively with God. For as long as someone suffers from guilt, God can never flow through him. We need to help people rid themselves of their guilt feelings. We need to stress to them that when you feel that you are unworthy and full of guilt, then you can simply come to the Lord and he will cleanse you. One day I was in my office and a beautiful couple walked in. The man was quite a handsome person and his wife very lovely. But even though his lovely wife was in her early 30s, she was emaciated, so emaciated, she can hardly open her eyes. Her husband said, Pasta, my wife is dying. I tried everything, psychology, psychiatry, and all the eternal and external medicine imaginable. I'm, I'm a rich man. I spent thousands and thousands of dollars on her, but the doctors could do nothing. Now they've given up hope. I have heard that you have really helped many people and they have been healed. I told him this was true, and I looked at her searching for the discernment and wisdom she needed in the situation. Silently, I prayed, Lord, she has come here. Now what can I do? Right away, God's still small voice spoke. She is suffering from a psychosomatic sickness. This is not an organic sickness. This is a mental sickness. Psychosomatic. I asked her husband to leave the room and said, Lady, lady, do you want to live? You need to live for your husband's sake. At least, if you're going to die, you should have done so before. Because now you have three children. If you die now, leaving your children with your husband, you'll really mess up his life. So sink or swim, you got to live for your husband and your children. I would like to live, she told me. I would like to live, she said. Then I can help you only on one condition. You must open up your past life, I answered. She straightened up and with anger glaring in her eyes said, Am I in a police station? Are you a dictator here? Why do you ask this? This is not interrogation, and I don't have to open up my past. I can't help you then, I replied. If you persist like this, I'm going to ask God to directly reveal the problem area of your past. She was frightened, and 
taking out a handkerchief from her purse, she began to cry. After a long sigh, she said, Sir, I will open up my past life, but I don't think this is the trouble. Yes, it is, I said. This is the cause of your problem. My parents died when I was young, she said, and I was practically raised in my elder sister's house. My sister was like a mother to me and my brother-in-law like a father. They took care of me wonderfully, and I lived with them while attending junior high school and college. When I was in my third year of college, my elder sister went into the hospital to give birth to her last child. During that time, I took care of the home and children. Without recognizing what was happening, my brother-in-law and I fell in love with each other. I don't know what happened to me, but we fell into an immoral relationship. Then guilt really struck into my heart. From that moment on, I was dying from guilt. But my brother-in-law would keep calling me from his office, and we would constantly meet at motels, hotels, and resort area. I went to the hospital and had several abortions. And even then, I could not refuse the request of my brother-in-law. I was scared to death of letting my sister know. My brother-in-law continued to intimidate me. I was slowly being destroyed. When I graduated from college, I determined that I would marry the first man who proposed to me. I found a job, and the young man who is now my husband asked me to marry him. With no questions asked about my past, I accepted, just so I could get away from my brother-in-law. I married him, and in time, he became quite prosperous. He resigned from his former work and began his own business. Now he is well off. We have a good home, money, everything. But since that time, with my brother-in-law, I have been suffering from these strong feelings of guilt. Whenever my husband makes love to me, I feel like a prostitute, for I have no right to receive his love. Inside, I am torn and crying. My children are like angels, and they come and hug me, saying, Mama, and I hate myself. I know that I'm a prostitute. I am not worthy to receive this kind of love from my children. I don't like to look at my face in the mirror. That is the reason I can't attire myself in the proper way. I lost my taste for food and have no happiness or joy in my heart. You must forgive yourself, I told her. I have good news for you. Jesus Christ came and died for you and your sins on the cross. Not even Jesus can forgive my sins, she cried. My sins are too great and too deep to be forgiven. I've done everything. Everyone else can be forgiven, but not me. I deceived my sister, and I can't confess what I'd done to her. That would mean breaking up her whole life. Silently, I wondered, Oh, Lord, how can I help her? Now, you got to help me. Then I listened for a still, small voice within my heart and suddenly got an idea. Sister, close your eyes, I instructed her, also doing the same thing myself. Let's go to a very silent and beautiful lake. Now you and I are sitting beside the lake, and there are many pebbles in my hands. I told, I'll hold a very small pebble. You please pick up a big rock. Let's throw this pebble and this rock into the lake. First is my turn. I take hold of the pebble and cast it in. Did you hear the sound it made? A ripple. Where is my pebble now? She answered. Well, it went down to the bottom of the lake. Right, I replied. Now it's your turn. Cast your rock and. And yes, you cast it in. Okay, now that you cast it in, did it make a light noise? No, she asserted. It made a big sound and a large ripple. But where is your rock, I asked. Down at the bottom, she replied.
Well, it seems that both my small pebble and your big rock went to the bottom when they were thrown. The only difference was the sound and ripple. Mine made a plop. Yours made a boom. Mine made a small ripple. Yours a large ripple. People go to hell with small sins just as well as big sins, for they are without Jesus Christ. And what is the difference sound and in, in its influence in society? Everyone needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus cures all sins, big and little. This touched her soul, and she walked to the truth. Does that mean that my sins could be forgiven by God? Of course, I replied. She slumped in her chair and began to cry, shivering. I tried to encourage and cheer her up, but she continued to cry and cry. Then I laid my hand on her head and led her in the sinner's prayer. Afterwards, when she lifted her face, I saw her eyes shining like stars, and glory began to shine from her face. She stood up and exclaimed, Pastor, I'm saved. All my burdens are lifted. I began to sing, and she began to dance. Before this time, she had never danced for joy before the Lord, but by this day, she jumped and danced, making quite a bit of noise. Her husband heard the noise and rushed into the office. When she saw him, she rushed to him and hugged his neck. She had never done that before, and her husband was unbelieving. He asked, what have you done to her? God has performed a miracle, I answered joyfully. You must give your whole heart to the Lord, I said, turning to his wife. The Lord has done great things for you. She soon was rid entirely from her guilt. Then the power of God welled up in her, and she was healed completely. That couple now attends my church, and whenever I look at the face of the lady, I cannot help thinking of the love of Jesus Christ. Now she has no sickness and is completely healed. When she let go of her clogging sin of guilt, the power of God flowed forth. Brothers and sisters, right now you have all of God's power dwelling within you. You can tap that power for your situation, your clothes, your books, your health, your business, everything. When you go out to preach the gospel, you are not preaching a vague objective, a theory, or a human religion. You're actually teaching people how to tap endless resources. You are giving them Jesus, and through Jesus, God comes and dwells within our hearts. Amen. The end of that chapter. Now remember, when we become Christians, not only do we need to retrain our thought life through thinking positively, thinking in terms of miracles and developing an orientation of success, we also need to be aware of our source of power and enablement. That's one of the reasons when we put on a rubber band, we can keep our minds clear of attacking ourselves, of causing confusion. Say, thank God for the situation. Always acknowledging God keeps the thoughts of God in our mind or the promises of God. For instance, God thinks about us all day long. God has our names written on his palm of his hand. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never leave you an orphan. Or you can say, God supplies all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's just a reminder is that I am created 
my emotions is not the truth. God's word is the truth. My emotions, my inferiority complexes, my sin of hatred, my sin of guilt, my sin of greed, my sin of laziness. I acknowledge the Lord and he gives me a clear-headed view of things with his love, with his love. Especially getting rid of the sin of fear, the sin of accomplish, trying to accomplish. I thank God I'm in this situation, and I thank God for his, for his word. Right away, you go into his word. I thank God for his word. The word of God says, I am your shepherd, you shall not want. I make you lie down in green pastures. I lead you besides the still waters. I restore your soul, says the Lord. I leave you in the paths of righteousness for my namesake. Yes, even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for I am with you, says the Lord thy God. I am your rod and your staff that will comfort you. I have prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I have anointed your head with oil. Your cup runs over, oil of love. Surely goodness and mercy and loving kindness shall follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. The rubber band will remind you of Psalm 23, and you'll recite it. Who's in control? The Word of God is in control. I can remind myself to keep thanking and praising the God with a rubber band. I remind myself to acknowledge the Lord God before any situation. And the way I acknowledge Him, I praise you, God, for this situation. I thank you for it. I thank you that something good is going to come out of it, something good from your word. It says that I am a world overcomer because I am born of you. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. No weapon formed against me will prosper, but whatever I do will prosper in the name of the Lord. My God supplies all my needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. I am good to go in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. By the blood of Jesus, I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven, I'm renewed, I'm restored. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen and amen.